Happy New Year, and welcome back to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is one of the world's great classical violinists, Anna-Sophie Mutter. In 2008, she established the Anna-Sophie Mutter Foundation to support promising young musicians worldwide. Since the pandemic outbreak, Mutter has been advocating for Germany's freelance musicians. Our conversation begins there. Now we are in a lockdown situation where you are allowed only to travel for business. Sure. And as I have no business, uh, I mean, no <laughs> concerts. Oh, actually, I do play, but only as part of, um, you know, church services, because sure. that's the only space in which one can have a live music performance. So sure. I'm doing this also in order to collect money for a Corona emergency fund for musicians, because we are about 55,000 musicians in um, Germany. And who are not employed by orchestras or, you know, other ensembles, the state, whatever. Since March, they are basically, we are all out of work. The life of an artist is always on the edge of society and on the edge of being really uncomfortable financially. So for these 50,000, 55,000 uh, colleagues, it's horrible. I'm trying to put a focus on that. And I'm in constant dialogue with president here, the minister president of Bavaria and also of the cultural minister in Germany. There have been really interesting studies, for example, in September and October when the opera here in Munich opened and 500 people were allowed into the hall and scientists very closely watched all the procedures and virologists and, you know, had their say, obviously. Their findings after two months is actually that there was not one case of uh, an incident where one person would have caught the virus. Mm-hmm. So one can, in fact, under strict limitation and, uh, you know, like in a, on a chessboard, uh, like they did in Salzburg, actually, pretty much uh, that system. Uh, right, in like in a spaced grid. Yeah, that's in, in a spaced grid. And we were all so grateful, actually, for Austria, for Salzburg to taking, uh, you know, for, for taking on in August 30 days of about 90 concerts and uh, orchestras got tested permanently, musicians got tested permanently. And the audience behaved wonderfully well and disciplined and nothing happened really. So Europe thought, at least the musicians and the music others thought, yeah, that's the beginning of, you know, the possibility of still sharing, even if in a limited fashion, what always has been an island of beauty and, you know, uh, togetherness and mutual joy. But... Sadly, uh, politicians push either the on or the off button, and that is uh, that's also economically unwise because uh, the funds they try now to pump into the cultural uh, institutes are on one way, on one side, not enough. On the other, it will contribute to you know having all of us to pay for it heavily later. And it would probably be better to find a middle ground where still a minimum of cultural life would also keep people more happy. These days, what can you do? I mean, you know, of course, America is probably even in a worse place um, when it comes to the health system. It's really a difficult time where there is not much left other than food and uh, and books. And that's great. You know, books are wonderful. (laughs) 
<laughs> theater is, uh, I think, a lot of us do miss, um, you know, these emotional, exceptional moments, which we usually share with at least one other person, you know, when yeah. you go to the theater or the museum even, something no one understands over here, why, why you can go do you know, a construction market uh, and buy, mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, stuff. And of course, it's terribly crowded. Uh, and then you, you could not put six people in a huge room and, uh, and just fall heads over heels into a, a wonderful painting and forget for a few minutes the bitter reality. I live in Berlin and for a while mm -hmm. there are timed entrances to museums and that uh -huh. sort of thing. Although now yeah. we're, on, we're on lockdown light. The word light, you know, for the ones who are uh, out of work, like artists or all the the self-employed, yes. um, you know, it, journalists and art directors and, um, you know, web designers. It's not only us musicians. It's cynical to speak of a lockdown light when so many people are without work. That's fair. It's a misleading term, right? Because yes. there's nothing yep. light. Yep. There's nothing light no. when you're out of nope. work. There's nothing yep. light for the million and a half people who have perished from this pandemic. Yep. And there's a consensus that things are going to get worse before they get better. Although at least we can see the light at the end of the tunnel with the rise of the vaccines, hopefully. Your plea for subtlety and not just an on and off switch is well well heard. And I know that you've been doing your part with, with these fundraising concerts and promoting awareness. So let's go to something slightly less critical, which is uh, that this was supposed to be the big Beethoven year. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but instead, it's, of course, year of Corona. I'm going to say some things about Beethoven for our listeners. Uh, yeah. But I have to tell you, I stopped with the Pathetique Sonata. That was probably my last big Beethoven in Beethovenian. Beethovian, mm -hmm. my last big <laughs> Beethoven challenge. It was a bit pathétique, if you will. My last movement uh, mm -hmm. was never really there. Beethoven broke me, I guess. Farmoter is what I'm trying to tell you. And uh, okay, <laughs> and and maybe maybe Ravel, maybe Bach, who gives you nowhere to hide. You know, these guys were three of the many reasons, along with my lack of discipline, talent, ambition. As to why I'm asking you questions about music and you're giving me answers. So hopefully, <laughs> ask away, but I'm not sure the answers will flow as eloquently as your questions. <laughs> Beethoven, foundational yeah. and also a game changer, an iconoclast who became an icon. Early achievements, we find him transforming, transcending these 18th century models, extending the Viennese classical tradition. The rise of the Beethoven Symphony contributed to and paralleled the rise of the artist and the rise of individuality, originality, and invention. To wit, we see Beethoven infecting the classical form with romantic diversion and side trips, most notably, say, in the Fifth Symphony, where this theme becomes an outsized development that muscles the theme off the stage. His approach has contaminated classical music in a way to where we see the genre through romantic colored glasses. His approach to composition ushered in a new symphonic ideal 
expanding the range of music itself in the form of goal-directed framework, interrelated movements, overarching narratives. And while Beethoven eventually rejected Napoleonic imperialism, he did subscribe to that conqueror's notion of self-made greatness. His journey of exploration and personal expression led to his stature as the dominant classical composer of the 19th and perhaps the 20th, perhaps the 21st century. Do you feel, Anna-Sophie Mutter, that mm -hmm. the music of LVB remains universal today in 2020, 250 years after his birth? Uh, yes, it does. And um, I'm reminded of one of the few concerts I have heard live this year after the pandemic, you know, erased all live art performances um, in March. It was in Berlin, actually, in uh, September, at the beginning of September, I had the great fortune to uh, play two uh, Beethoven romances in this open air concert on the Babelplatz with Maestro Barnboim and uh, his wonderful orchestra who... Um, celebrated, I think, their 450th birthday, um, the Staatskapelle Berlin. And, uh, of course, the ninth was, because it was an open air, so it was possible. And I was actually crying throughout the entire symphony. First of all, because it was such an overwhelming experience to hear a live performance again, to be rejoined by musician colleagues, to sit around... 2,000 people outdoors and share this moment and to hear the ode to joy, realizing that society has not really improved much, uh, if at all, in terms of this wonderful text being embraced millions. And uh, as we all know, it's about brother and, uh, of course, sisterhood. And um, seeing, you know, your next as part of your own. And where are we today? Very far away from actually what uh, Beethoven has written some uh, over 200 years ago. So, yes, his musical message is more pressing and more relevant and more needed as our guiding light than ever before. Let's jump ahead 250 years to John Williams. You've... <laughs> You've been doing some projects with Mr. Williams. Funny that you mentioned that because I'm just coming back from my office and I was handed uh, his second violin concerto in a, in a new, he's constantly working at it and rewriting uh, things. And uh, so I just got uh, yet another version and I'm, I'm so excited. That is very exciting. Tell me about the Violin Concerto, and I imagine there's a revised timeline now for its premiere, but tell me all about it. As much as I'm permitted to tell of anything course, about of it, course. It's, uh, it's a four-movement uh, piece uh, with a huge orchestration, a rather prominent uh, also harp part. And uh, the birthday is supposed to be at the beginning, probably now at the middle of July uh, at the Tanglewood Festival, so sometime in July next year. And uh, we also want to bring it to Hollywood Bowl and uh, hopefully also play there some of the wonderful rewritten film themes he has um, uh, written for me. So uh, it will be a combination. And I'm very, very passionately planning to travel the world with this violin concerto because it will be a very relevant piece. And it will also show, once again, the incredible compositorial scope John Williams has been presenting over six decades now. Most of us are, of course, more aware of his film scores because they are just 
seen and heard by more people. But that doesn't change the fact that he has written already in the 70s a fabulous violin concerto and, as we all know, incredible concerti for your Yuma and, of course, for my wonderful legendary colleagues, uh, Itzhak Perlman and uh, Isaac Stern. So um, it, it's wonderful that um, I have the great fortune to present two of the many uh, facets of this incredibly um, genius uh, musician. And man. I had a chance to speak to Mr. Williams in March at the beginning of the pandemic, and mm -hmm. my daughter a few years ago was really into Superman. And I said Whoa. to her, Hey, did, did you know that Superman has his own music? She was like, No. So, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I played the, of course, Williams theme. And yeah. at the beginning, there's this, after this beautiful, soft setting of the space, there's yeah. this sort of building. There's the yeah. building ostinato of dun 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 dun, dun. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, my daughter <laughs> it's turns. So heroic. It yeah. is, and my daughter yeah. turns to me and she says, "He's coming. Superman is coming." to make a then four-year-old understand the narrative of yeah. what's happening, right? And yeah. I've always felt this bridge between Williams and Wagner, not just mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. of those light yeah, motifs. Yeah, the light motifs, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the light motifs, uh, if we look at uh, Star Wars, uh, I'm convinced that Star Wars, of course, is a fabulously done, you know, um, space spectacle and um, story, but... If it wouldn't be for John Williams's capacity to really feel and feel the personalities and the physiognomy of these characters in such a deep way, I think much of what is emotionally so touching and uh, moving wouldn't have stayed with us over decades and wouldn't have touched three generations of moviegoers. It's really the light motifs, and once they shine through, just in the background in a pianissimo, you hear the Yoda theme. I mean, it just gives you chisels and goosebumps and everything. so much material and genius really in the understanding of the character and in the promise of where they will go 
Mm. And that is what gave it. It's like a seed, you know, you plant and he planted these seeds thinking that Star Wars would be Star Wars, a one time thing. And to everybody's great and George Lucas's great surprise, <laughs> it was uh, obviously, as we know now, John had already really, you know, put the seeds down and then all these fabulously um, elaborate characters grew out of it. And he just had to only go back to what he had already envisioned. A little bit like the Oracle of Delphi, what he did there. You know, he saw much more in it. He just uh, had the seventh sense of delivering a score which would have the capacity to last over decades and decades and more narrative and more action and more love stories and drama and and tragedies and uh, everything was there from the beginning on taking that care and that seriousness uh, putting that into the work as a in this case film composer which strangely in germany has a, a slight ogu is remarkable and makes him a remarkable composer and I think we both agree, and we are not the only ones uh, to agree that his music obviously stands alone. You don't need the pictures, and mm -hmm. that is what makes it so great. Yeah, that's that's it just tells it. his own story, you know. Beyond these light motifs, like you yeah. said, the creation of a world in the same way that Parsifal, the overture, mm -hmm. you know, builds the yes. the way he's able yeah. to build these soundscapes and these these clouds of support is truly remarkable. Yeah, and in the same moment, he also knows how to use silence. You know, if you think of Munich and how mm. sparingly and sometimes there is none to make it even even more heart-wrenching when the sobbing theme is coming back at the very end played by the cello. Mm -hmm. So it's not only about music. It's really like in Mozart's uh, uh, genius scores. It's much the space between the music, the silence, and sometimes the very few notes written. It's not always in the big scope. And that is also, uh, in my opinion, what makes John Williams great. He has a sense of drama and he knows that great music comes always of out of silence and he uses that to its best advantage. You're in a unique position because he's adapted a lot of this film music into these arrangements dedicated yeah. uh, to you, to the solo violin. I'm thinking of this cadenza in, mm -hmm. the, uh, in the Hedwig Harry Potter <laughs> piece. Yeah. Let's just focus in on that piece for a moment. Yep. Did you work with him on this cadenza? Was it written out? Was it through composed? Was it improvised? Talk to me about the process of the creation of this arrangement. I think John Williams uh, um, doesn't use the word arrangement. It's it's a rewritten, a rewritten uh, sure. theme, which, which has existed, obviously, in a, in a different surrounding in a different character, and now the violin tries to fit into the scenario, which uh, actually particularly also in Hedwig, where I'm in a duet with the celeste, which uh, I've always loved to grow out of the orchestra score, which is part of my life as a, as a solo performer. But I'm always coming somewhere. I mean, the score is obviously um, 
like in the Beethoven Concerto, for example, in the Brahms, it's very symphonic. So the violin really is not in the forefront uh, as the lonely virtuoso doing the somersaults backwards through the burning hoop, but rather sharing a conversation with uh, the flute, with the oboe, whatever. And that is what makes much of these um, film themes so exciting for me as a musician who is transfixed by colors. So Hedwig at uh, the beginning and the cellist and, and obviously my attempt to imitate this kind of glass, clear and, and very transparent sound. And that's also why I use a lot of empty strings. So it is a more steely, a less warm and, and vibrant um, sound. But now to the cadenza. First of all, there's Ralph tonal stuff in Hedwig. So it's it's music which is so fabulously crafted. And I think the real genius in any form of art is, you know, you stand in front of the painting and you see the water lilies by Monet or you see the apples of Cezanne. You think, yeah, that's an apple. You know, I could have done that. It's obviously an apple and I've seen it. And, you know, it, that's what it is. And, uh, of course, you cannot replicate it. And uh, the, the, the same for Hedwig. It seems to be so unavoidably simple and fascinatingly unchangeable. I mean, it's just there and it seems to be so innocent and beautiful and playful and inventive, but you don't really hear and understand that this is 12 tonal in the most consequent um, of forms, particularly in the cadenza. So did I have any say in the cadenza? No. I didn't have any say whatsoever, and I'm perfectly happy with that because <laughs> my role is to, once the score arrives, tear my hair out, get into a terrible panic and depression, and then start to work. understanding of instruments in general is phenomenal and I asked him how come that you seem to know everything intimately what is possible and whatnot which does not mean in any way that is um, that it is easy some of what he has written also some of the themes from Star Wars 
it's so incredibly or the witches of Eastwick. Oh my God, this is so virtuosic and difficult. Far and away has passages where, you know, you have to tear your hair out. Um, so knowing the instrument doesn't mean that you write comfortable, but he writes in a way which after much heartache, a musician is able to really play it. So really Hedwig arrived and there were a little, a few things we were discussing. I was fascinated in my early rehearsals uh, at the Hollywood studios months before we went uh, into recording. I was fascinated by his fixation on every single detail. If the end of a phrase would be a half note or a quarter note, if there would be a dot or not. And something I've never uh, had in a collaboration with any living composer, obviously with no dead one either, is the bowings, the phrasings. He would come up with the wildest <laughs> and most amazing bowings. And I thought I'm the, you know, I'm the violinist here, but <laughs> most of the times he was absolutely right musically in any case, but also from a technical uh, viewpoint. And this insightfulness but also this care and this relentless search for the perfect phrase mm. um, is something one cannot estimate highly enough i think it's very humbling to see a man who has how, how often was he uh, you know uh, nominated for an oscar uh, almost as much as walt disney i think 50 times <laughs> every year several times he's totally unfazed by that uh, he really up to this day is is uh, wrenching his heart out and is constantly refiguring out possibilities of orchestration of things he has done uh, way back and is in total um, in constant progress in constant search for yet maybe possibly a better solution mm -hmm. When you approach a new piece, okay let's say let's mm -hmm. take John Williams' second violin concerto All right so. Yep. You're approaching a new piece or a new commission or, or a 21st century piece. Do you approach it in the same way as you would a war horse from the previous centuries, one which has several reference recordings to peruse, or does the process change? Uh, he actually also wrote the music for War Horse, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice tie-in. Yeah. Um, no, uh, the, the process is the same. Uh, maybe with one exception, when studying music which has been previously recorded, I have always avoided listening to these recordings. And that's why I've always felt that it is particularly important for a young generation who is a little bit, hmm, let's say it's, it's terribly easy these days to get information and very often wrong information. Uh, first of all, one has to learn how to find out if the information you are getting is valid, uh, if there are different sources who can, you know, confirm what you have found. And the same is true with interpretation. You know, you, you will not grow as an artist if you go online and you listen to great colleagues and then you try to stew up yeah, uh, sure. a combination of different viewpoints. So it is a wonderful exercise to do contemporary music. Because it's a language, a foreign language, and because there is no reference point or very little reference point to anything else. So it's intellectually a great learning process. And so how do I go about 
usually I try to only look at the violin part at first and, and try to get through the piece and get a sense, you know, where the themes are, what, yeah, where the architecture of the whole piece is. And I try to get to know that in a, in a way that I'm already thinking about fingerings because I can already sense and, and hear in my inner ear in what emotional landscape things are moving along. Then I look into the score to get a deeper um, understanding of where the violin part is coming from, what role the orchestra has also in, in reference to my part of it. Usually I go about three or four rounds uh, with fingerings because fingerings uh, are already part of interpretation. They very much determine, I, I would say, a part of architecture. They very much de determine the, the narrative and help the narrative, the colors, the shades. For our listeners, that would mean yeah. like when to play an open string, when to use stronger fingers in certain passages, how to walk through yeah. the maze. Yeah. And, you know, obviously every string on the violin, the G, D, A and E have different characteristics and different colors. Mm -hmm. um, and so you could play a certain theme. Let's, let's, for example, take the theme of the um, Beethoven Violin Concerto when it comes back after the cadenza. You can play it on the D string, which I would say 98% uh, do. You could also play it on the G string, which I do. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, zero point whatever percent of my colleagues. I play it on the G string because when that moment comes back, it's very, in my opinion, very reflective. And there are only pizzicatis in the orchestra. and it's like looking back on life 50 years after things have happened. And it's like an inward prayer. And so the G-string provides a kind of darkness. And, and I also have a wolf on, the, uh, on one of the notes on the G-string. So there's always this risk of the note collapsing slightly. For our listeners, the G-string is the lowest string. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's the lowest string. So I'm I'm going to that lowest string because it has a kind of, like if you would take the human voice, it's not the soprano, it's not the tenor, it's almost the bass, you know. Um, so it, it has a very raw, deep, resonant uh, quality in itself. So the character of what you're playing and, and the underlining, it's like with the human voice, you know, where you can either talk inwardly very darkly or you can talk very up and preppy and so on and so forth. So the fingering is really, there is a wonderful book by Zigetti, one of the great violinists of the last century, about the importance of fingerings and bowings. These days, very rarely read, I think, but one of the great joys of being an artist is following uh, this uh, wonderful proverb of Einstein who once said, fantasy is more important than knowledge. Basically meaning without fantasy, there is no knowledge. And he wanted to obviously point out that fantasy has no limits. Knowledge has limits. Mm -hmm. 
So if fantasy has no limits, there is no limitation as where the score, once you have understood the architecture, um, is going when it comes to nuances. So once I have finally done my fourth or third round of finding the fingerings, it's about the phrasing, the bowing very much is the narrative of music. How long span will this idea flow until there comes the moment of culmination, musical culmination, or maybe there will be a change into a minor key? Then, of course, you would change the bow, maybe be hesitant for a split second. So in Beethoven scores, for example, what one um, usually is really amazed about is that he has these long bowing lines over several bars, which obviously are like a roadmap where the musical narrative goes, much more than a physical indication as how often you should change the bow. So obviously that determination of where a bow change will happen is the next part of the working process uh, with the new piece. So, you know, work of that is happening and hopefully I will have found a pianist by then who is able to uh, read through the um, reduced orchestra score in a, in a piano reduction or is doing his own uh, piano reduction to give me a feel of the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And that is then the really interesting, um, not that the other part isn't interesting, but that's the real challenging part because now you really get to know the gigantic surroundings the themes in the orchestra your co-soloists like in the in the violin concert of john williams very much the harp so we need a splendid harp player uh, for for the performances to come and that you know is going to take weeks usually then there's a period of not touching the piece and waking up in the middle of the night and suddenly have a having a brilliant or not a brilliant but an idea about <laughs> what what i could change or oh suddenly understand something usually takes years. And even, you know, the great Lynn Harrell, who sadly passed away a few months ago, I miss him so much. He was one of the greatest, maybe the greatest string player I have ever witnessed live. And we played so many concerts together and I always felt like a student next to him. So anyhow, I found out that even Lynn, after decades of studying a piece, suddenly found solutions where he had been wrestling with passages for years which seemed to be so simple and obvious, but it took both of us decades to <laughs> to find them. But it's always wonderful to find a colleague who also wrestles from time to time with issues. That's when you know you're playing with peers, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for taking me inside this process. I imagine that the final step is finding this chemistry between orchestra soloists and conductor, that magical yeah. connection, yeah. as people call yeah. it. Yeah. And, you know, there is nothing more exciting than when working with John Williams, like in, in the film scores we have done, or also in the short piece he has written for chamber orchestra and violin markings. You stand next to such a wonderful conductor and composer. And from time to time, he looks over and, you know, smiles. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> that is that is heaven, Ben, I tell you, because... When you wrestle with scores of great artists who you obviously cannot call or ask, like Beethoven or Mozart, it is really, really difficult to play into this void Mm. and to know that there are so many ways you could go about and not really being certain. But probably if you read 
the performance practice of Mozart and and how stormingly he was improvising and obviously always playing different, then you might be content with the knowledge that being on the search and always changing your viewpoint is the right way and um, not following a formula which once worked is a path one should avoid. I think that's a perfect place to end. Anna-Sophie, viel Glück. And uh, ich hoffe, <laughs> Sie bald live zu sehen und zu hören. Actually, uh, if, if you go to church, I mean, probably most of us don't, but in this case, I think I'm in Berlin on Saturday playing in the Dome, but, but just a few minutes. It's just a Mozart quartet in Sambach. I'll swing by with my mask. <laughs> yes, please. Okay. With my, absolutely. Thanks Thank for your you time so then. been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips of Carlos Kleiber conducting the Vienna Philharmonic in the opening to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, John Williams conducting the London Symphony Orchestra in Prelude Main Title March from Superman the Movie on Warner, Herbert von Karajan conducting the Berlin Philharmonic and Anna-Sophie Mutter in Beethoven's Violin Concerto in D Major and John Williams conducting the Recording Arts Orchestra of Los Angeles in Anna-Sophie Mutter in Hedwig's theme and Yoda's theme from the album Across the Stars. All recordings excepting Superman on Deutsche Grammophon. Our intro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, Editor-in-Chief at ListenMusicCulture.com. Our outro music is the title track from Across the Stars. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Subscribe to Soundboard on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or wherever you pod your casts. Thank you for listening.